but then all the way to verse 14. Ah, that sounds better. Thank you. So page 811, I don't know if you heard that, is where we need to be this morning. Just a couple of things. First, if we haven't met and you would like to meet, it would be my absolute privilege to do that when our time together is finished. Also, as always, if you have a question about what what was happening here this morning, please stop and grab me and I'll be doing my best to try to answer that question for you. And if you went by the Welcome Center, you might have noticed this little card. And basically what it is, in light of the, the sermons we've been working through on personal evangelism, this is just a simple little card that has our morning worship times and the name and our address and our website. So the thought is, as you're talking to people, you have some kind of thing that you can give to them when this discussion is ended to say, well, here, why don't you give Jesus a go or something like that. Give them the card and at the very least they can consider what has happened. So these cards look like this and they're at the Welcome Center. So just keep that in mind. Okay, well, I'm going to read, as I said, from the Bible, and then we're going to seek the help that we need, that I need from God in prayer, and then, then we're going to go on. So let's do that. Verse 26, chapter 9. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and make it my slave so that after I preach to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and got up and indulged in pagan revelry. Verse 8, we should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test the Lord as some of them did and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you are tempted, He will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Verse 14, Therefore, my dear friends, Flee from adultery. Amen. May the Lord bless the reading of his word this morning. Let's bow together, please, and let's pray. Father, sometimes at this moment, I think I sound like a broken record to you, but what is needed is needed. When we are weak, then we are strong. So we do ask, I do ask in my weakness that you will make all of this book live in all of us this morning. So that by you, by your spirit, would train us in righteousness as you define it. In order that we may be better able to serve you or so that we might come to know you. So we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. There is no way one can properly understand the Bible if one pays no attention to context. Context in the plain sense of what is being said before 
and what is being said after the particular verses in the middle which you are trying to understand. And if a pastor or people ignore context, then they will not only miss exactly what is being said, they will have a growing potential to fashion a life that is nothing near what is being said. Clearly then, context is incredibly helpful, but sometimes the chapter breaks given to us by Bible translators are incredibly unhelpful in helping us understand the Bible. Let me just tell you what I mean. Many of you know that in the original manuscripts, as well as the early manuscripts, the chapter breaks that we have and the verses that we have, they were not given. So there was no chapter 1, verse 1, and 2, verse 20, and so on in the original and early manuscripts. Point of fact, it wasn't until the year 1560 in the Geneva Bible did we have the book, the first books in the Bible, English Bible, that were divided into chapters and verses. And of course, sometimes the chapters and verses are very helpful in understanding when the writer's thoughts or his instruction is changing or moving on to something else. However, if you ask the question, okay, how did the original readers and those who came after, how did they know when the writer's point was changing or the instruction was moving on? The answer would be by the words that were used and the sentences that were written and the phrases that were used, just like, frankly, any other book. So here at the end of chapter 9, at the beginning of chapter 10, we have this potential. We have the potential, if we're not paying attention to context, to miss a monumental moment in the Bible because of a chapter break that was given, not by God, but was given, where God, through the pen of Paul, is making a massive point on the moral restrictions that are needed in our personal evangelism as we limit our Christian freedoms to advance the gospel so that at the end we may receive the prize and a rich welcome into God's heaven. And you see, that is how chapter 9 ended. Look at your Bibles if you have the Bibles open. Beat down your flesh. That's what he's saying, which gets in the way of what? Of personal evangelism so that you can receive the prize. Then as you look at chapter 10, keeping 9 in mind as you should, context, there is nothing here that would suggest that in chapter 10, Paul is suddenly changing topics. I mean, you're a sensible people. You can see this for yourself. The same line of thought continues on. So that when you get to verse 13, no temptation has seized you which is common to man, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted so uh, to beyond what you can bear, providing a way out so that you can stand up under it. The context of these verses are directly tied to the temptations. Pay attention, please. They are directly tied to the temptations which could turn into sins which keep us from being effective, willing, personal evangelism evangelists. That's the context. So you see, the first and exact meaning of verse 13 of chapter 10 is, okay, chapter 9, verse 27, I beat my body, I make up my slaves so that after I've preached, I will not be disqualified for the prize. The principle is being laid down. Verses 1 to 12 of chapter 10, here's examples, here are warnings to us of how good God was to his people, how bad his people were, which meant they did not receive the prize, which meant they did not go into the promised land. Therefore, application to us, when you and I are being tempted not to restrict our flesh, not to restrict our freedoms, so that we remain obstinate, unwilling, cowardly, fleshly, whatever, God is so faithful He will not let us be tempted to the point where we are unable to evangelize. That is the the first meeting. God makes the way of escape. God makes it so that we can obey. God makes it so that we can get the prize. 
So yes, the general principle is God is faithful in all our temptations. And we all know this. Those of us that are Christians, we know it. God is faithful. He makes a way of escape. The, the, the temptation is not unbearable. However, the exact context and the point Paul is making under God and he's trying to drive home to the Corinthian church is, is to yield to temptations which could turn into sins, which shut down any meaningful effort in personal evangelism, God will not let those temptations become unbearable to his own. They won't be bigger than us. God will provide the way of escape in order that we can stand up under it. God will provide the way of escape in order that we may beat down our flesh, which stands in the way of personal evangelism to win people to him and, to win people to him and then gain the prize. Now, if you're tracking with me, right there we should be saying, Hallelujah, what a Savior. Hallelujah, what a Savior. I had no idea God was that concerned with personal evangelism. Well, He is. Again, general truth and all our temptations to sin, Friday night, Tuesday morning, whatever, God is faithful. He won't let us be tempted beyond what we can bear, and He will provide a way of escape. But the specific context which underpins how serious God is about the necessity of effective personal evangelism in the Christian's life, in our personal context. God will not let that temptation, which can get in our way, be so strong that we can evangelize. And so we can win the prize. That's the point. God provides the way of escape because God is a fantastic father. And every good father wants their kids to get it right. They'll do what's necessary to get it right and they'll give up stuff so they can get it right. And you see, loved ones, all along I've been saying through this series how personal evangelism and personal holiness are inseparable. Now, the modern church has done a terrific job of making them not. But when we go back to the Bible, personal holiness, personal evangelism, inseparable. So now we see why, why context is so important. And I hope you see that it's so dangerous to hop, skip, and jump over Bible verses, make it a talk, make it a sermon, and say, there you go. No, no, maybe not. Maybe not. And I also hope you see why expository preaching, as hard as it is to do and to listen to at times, that's the chief way the Bible has to be taught if you want to know the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help us God. Now before we go on, let me give one more example just to kind of drive this point home deeper. Philippians 1.6, He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. I, I sent someone a text yesterday and I put that verse on there for them. Okay? A great assurance for the Christian, right? A general truth that in the ebb and flow of life, in a, in a crazy old world, God is faithful. He's going to finish the work. However, Specific context, and you should check this for yourself. When we're through this morning or this afternoon, go home and check to make sure I'm telling you the truth. Specific context, Paul is telling the Philippian church that his partnership with them, and you guessed it, in the gospel, gospel expansion, God is so committed to that. He's so committed to personal and public evangelism that in that partnership, God will be faithful. He'll be faithful to the end. And even though Paul's in prison, and even though the church has some issues, 
God will be faithful to complete the work of gospel expansion in that partnership so that they can receive the prize. Because God wants his people to win the prize. What's true for them, by dent of principle then, is true for us. Which again, and I can't say this enough, which tells us how committed God is to gospel advancement, not just around the world. Thank God he's committed to that. But in the places that he put us so that we can gain the prize. So last time we learned that Paul was concerned that all Christians who were running, they would finish strongly. He applied this to himself. He said that in verses 26 and 27, I'm trying to run the right way. I'm beating down my flesh the right way. Having applied it to himself, he now goes into chapter 10, as we said, still on that same theme, addressing some people in the Corinthian church that were apparently presumptuous people. They were insolent. They were arrogant people, very confident in themselves. How do you know that? Verse 11 and 12, there's a warning. Verse 12, they thought they were standing. There's no way they could fall. No way. So these would be the kind of people who would read what Paul read. And specifically in verses 26 and 27, Paul's worry and the warning of being disqualified. And presumably the people would look at each other and say, you know, what's he trying to do? Scare us? You know, I've been hearing these kind of evangelistic sermons for years. I've done nothing really about personal evangelism, and I'm just fine. So, so Paul doesn't really mean all this stuff. He's just trying to you know, stir us up a little bit, fill a few seats. Who knows? It doesn't really matter. I mean, I keep chugging along in my life and doing the same thing. Everything's just fine. So what would you do with that kind of presumption? What would you do with that kind of attitude? What would you do with a group which says, I'm fine, I've been fine for a long time, and the hard labor of personal, effective evangelism and the place God has put me is frankly the furthest thing from my mind. I've got things to do and places to go and people to see. What would you do? And keep this in mind. Paul is not calling into question their salvation. Look at your Bible, verse 1, chapter 10. For I don't want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers. So he's not trying to preach them out of heaven. The Bible's clear. Thank God the Bible's clear. True salvations are just that, true salvations. There is never a disinheritance. However, the Bible does not promote presumption. And there are strong warnings from the Bible against presumption, against the audacity to think that because of grace, you are free to do whatever you like, whenever you like, and still stand firm. So again, what do you do with such people? How do you tell a person who thinks they're okay, who appears as if they are okay, they speak as if they're okay, but they are not okay? Well, this is what Paul does under God. Essentially, he just tells them the truth. The back of the worship folder, the three points that we're working through, don't panic. The first point's going to be way too long. Sorry. The other ones will catch up and we'll be out of here and eating food in no time after we receive communion. Number one, he reminds them of history, right? In the opening verses there, verses 1 to 5, Paul gives a true example from true history in the Old Testament. And he's telling these kinds of people the truth about how God repeatedly had blessed their forefathers. In Christ, the Jewish Christian and the Gentile Christian are one in heritage. So he's speaking to all of them. And Paul in verse 1 is using what is called a litotis which is a fancy way of saying that he's playing down something for emphasis. In other words, verse 1, you really need to know this. 
You, you must not forget that when you think about your heritage, namely the people and the generation that he's going to speak of, they were full of the blessings that God had given them. However, because of their lack of self-control in the case of the Israelites, verse 5, do you see it there? God was not pleased with most of them. And that's a very graphic picture, verse 5. It's a picture of a battlefield, and there's literally dead bodies everywhere. And that is the beginning of Paul's warning. With all those blessings given to all God's people, most of them did not enter into the fullness that these blessings were pointing to. In other words, most of them did not enter into the promised land. And I want you to notice the word all is used plenty of times by Paul. All were under the cloud, verse 1a. All passed through the sea, verse 1b. All were baptized into Moses, verse 2. All ate the same spiritual food, verse 3. Chapter 9, verse 24, do you see it there? All the runners run. But, chapter 10, verse 5, with most, God was not pleased. Now, I hope you're tracking with me. God was so good to these people. He guided them all under the cloud, Exodus chapter 13. God was guiding his people in the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. So that every night, and this is a lovely thought, every night when the kids would go to bed, they would see the pillar of fire out there. They would go to sleep, they would wake up, they'd peek out their tents, and there it was, the pillar of cloud, the visible expression of the blessing and love of God, guiding them through the desert. God is present again. God is present with his people. God is guiding his people. They knew it. They saw it. And in a sense, they felt it. Then, as you see in your Bibles, they all passed through the sea. Right? Charlton Heston knows this fine. A wall of water on the left. A wall of water on the right. Dry ground beneath them. Exodus chapter 14. And in a moment, dead Egyptians. God had delivered them from what? They could never deliver themselves from Egyptian bondage. Salvation, freedom, finally. The power of God was just lavished on these people. I mean, as you think about the story, basically what they did is they picked up their stuff, they collected some gold, and they walk out of Egypt. Verse 2, they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. In other words, Paul is saying their passage through the sea and their guidance by the cloud is, is a baptism of sort. That was their baptism. They were saying publicly, we will obey Moses. We will put ourselves under the leadership of Moses, into Moses. In the same way, uh, this points, if you would, to redemptive history, right? So in a public baptism now, what is the person saying? They're saying they are aligning themselves with Christ. They are under Christ. They put themselves voluntarily and unconditionally under the leadership of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the baptism then is one of the realities that that points to. Verse 3, they all ate and same the same eat, excuse me, they all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. So again, Exodus 16, verse 2. You might want to mark these verses down. You can read them later. As soon as something terrible apparently happens, the people of God begin to grumble against Moses and Aaron. Remember? Oh, the good old days. <clears throat> when we had everything we wanted in Egypt, we were slaves. But we had everything we wanted. And then they said, why didn't we die by the Lord's hand there? And now, Moses, you have brought us out here to starve and die. I mean, what a terrific bunch to be around, right? How tremendously encouraging it must have been to Moses to be with these people. 400 years, they wanted out of Egypt. Moses puts himself on the line under God and gets them out of Egypt. And the first thing that goes wrong, we don't like you anymore, right? 
no pastor appreciation meal for you, right? We will all eat. You sit in the corner and think about what you're done. You've done. God's response. Exodus chapter 16 again, verse 12. The Lord said to Moses, I've heard the grumblings of the Israelites. Tell them at twilight you'll eat meat and in the morning you'll be filled with bread. Then you'll know that I am the Lord your God. That evening quail came and covered the camp and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, What is it? For they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, It is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Everyone is to gather as much as they need. You read on, verse 35, For 40 years they ate manna from heaven, free food. Right? So, what a grace given to them. The best Nicole and I can do with our son is every once in a while we'll load up his Panera bread card. Jared, my son, he's away. Right? I don't think we're going to do it for 40 years. <laughs> I hope we're not going to do it for 40 years. But imagine, every day, they, if you would, could go to Panera Bread and eat on God's tab. But again, later on, the people grumble. They have one song in their book, right? Why did you take us out of Egypt so that we, our children, and our livestock will die of thirst? Exodus 17, 3. So Moses cries out to God. They're ready to stone me. God provides instruction. God provides ultimately the rock. God tells Moses, strike the rock. He strikes the rock. When the water which was needed is the water that is given. Yay, God. Everybody happy. <laughs> no. Nevertheless, <laughs> that's why Paul writes, they all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual water. Because this was a special intervention of God. Bread and water sent from heaven for all the people, right? Now, the great truth about this thing is that when Paul explains it, he says, verse 4b, I hope you see this in your Bible, they drank of the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. In other words, the physical provision of water in the Old Testament, and by the way, there was a rabbinic tradition that said that that rock went with them wherever they went in the desert, so if they went that way, the rock would give them water, if they went that way, the water would follow. The rock would follow again and give them water. The physical provision of water in the Old Testament was speaking of and pointing to a far deeper provision, a spiritual provision for the people of God. So we know that God has always provided for his people and God will continue to provide for his people. And God will always reveal himself to his people in the person of his son in his fullest expression because the son is the fullest expression of God. Which is why the son said, and you can read this in Luke chapter 24, verse 45, he was on the road to Emmaus. He was teaching two disciples and then he taught all his disciples. This is what it says. He opened up their minds so that they could understand their scripture, the scripture, the Old Testament. This is what is written in the scripture, in the Old Testament. Christ will suffer, written in the Old Testament. Christ will rise from the dead, written in the Old Testament. And repentance and forgiveness will be preached in Christ's name. Therefore, this is fantastic. What Paul is saying is this. In the Old Testament, the people of God knew the sustaining presence and provision of the pre-incarnate Christ. The pre-cross Christ, if you would. The pre a flesh-embodied Christ, caring for and meeting the needs of his people. Christ was then with them in the Exodus, and Christ was with them in the wanderings. 
Now, that is not to say that the people of God in the Exodus said, oh yeah, there's Christ. But it is to say this, and I would write this down if you've never heard this before. It is to say that the New Testament reveals what the Old Testament conceals. Say it again. The New Testament reveals what the Old Testament conceals. So it's to say that the only rock there's ever been or will ever be for all of God's people in every age is Christ. He's the only rock. And that's a very important lesson. Because sometimes, you know, you read these kinds of books and you hear kinds of sermons and they have graphs and charts and Old Testament stuff and, and, you know, maybe like a big cross in the middle or somewhere. And it's just a bloody mess. And it's a great nuisance to properly understand the Old Testament. Paul is telling us how we should understand the Old Testament, which is the way Jesus understood the Old Testament, which is the way the other apostles understood it. Christ, the pre-incarnate or resurrected Christ, has always been the bread of life for his people. He's always been the rock. He gives water, Exodus 17, John chapter 4, the woman at the well. He gives water, and no one who drinks his water spiritually will ever be thirsty again. Here's the point. Christ was spiritually active in the Old Testament. He was being prophesied, he was being pointed to, yes, and he even was being relied on in the Old Testament. This is a children's catechism question. How were people saved in the Old Testament? How? By faith. By faith they were saved. So are you getting this? It wasn't one kind of God in the Old Testament. He changed his mind, said, I'm going to be a lot nicer and become a different kind of God in the New Testament. No. In the Old Testament, the people of God underwent a baptism pointing forward to what Christ would do. In the New Testament, the people of God undergo a baptism pointing backward to what Christ has already done. In the Old Testament, the people of God ate and drank a meal in prospect of what Christ would do. In the New Testament, we eat and drink a meal, communion and celebration of what Christ has done. And it's all done in faith. And it's all pointing to Christ. The Old Testament flows to Christ. The New Testament, if you would, flows out of Christ. So now, the truth that Paul is giving is very much in focus. And I want you to see the connection. This is what he's trying to to say. These people under Moses received amazing grace. Just like the Corinthian Christians. And just like you or I who call Christ our Savior and Lord. These people were redeemed from the bondage of Egypt. They were saved from Egyptian wrath. They were fed. They were watered. They were spiritually baptized into the leadership of Moses, cared for, guided for, looked after, and the totality of their existence. Grace, grace, grace given to them. Just like the Christian. We've been set free from the bondage of sin. We've been removed from God's wrath. We've been baptized into Christ. We commune with people in Christ in this meal. We're cared for. We're guided, looked after by the bread of life, by the living water himself. Grace upon grace upon grace. But, verse 5, you see it there? And this is our second point. He gives them a warning. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. With most of them. He's not preaching them out of heaven. He's just saying, with most, God was not pleased. They ill-treated their privileges. They did, and the potential and the warning then is that we can too. So just as there were presumptuous people in the Old Testament, there were apparently presumptuous people in Corinth. And surely we know this. There could be presumptuous people here now. 
It could be me. It could be you. We've been baptized. Deep, significant, stating publicly that we are aligned to Jesus Christ. We share in a common meal, physically and spiritually nourished by the Lord Jesus Christ. We are with God's people. We are, in a sense, with them in the journey. But please listen carefully. To receive blessing does not mean that you enter into the privileges and responsibilities of that blessing. Let me tell you what I mean. Question. How many of the people of God who were originally delivered out of Egypt entered into that promised land? Just take a moment. How many? There were only two. Who were they? Well, it's probably Moses and Aaron. No. It was Joshua and Caleb. Well, why not Moses and why not Aaron? Because both of them disobeyed God's revealed will. Because to receive blessing does not mean that you have entered into the privileges and responsibilities of blessing no matter who you are. So did they make it into heaven? Yes, of course they did. And here's, again, here's part of the point. Only the unpresumptuous person will understand this. You see, we may grow old and cold in church. We may be stimulated in our minds by the preaching of God's word. We may become part of every external rite that is part and parcel of the life of a good Christian church. We may be part of all that, but still miss the privileges and the responsibilities of grace, which, again, this is the context, the privileges of grace in part involve the personal restraints of our personal liberties and personal sins for effective personal evangelism. That's the context. Now, if you're still listening, is that not a challenge? You bet your life that's a challenge. We may do church great. We may appear great to our peers. We may even feel great. We may feel so great that we say, you know, we don't really need this evangelism stuff. Could you just move along? But when the day comes and when those prizes are passed out, there's nothing for us. Why? Because we failed to make our flesh, our slave. We fail to do our duty, run our race right, so there's no prize. Listen to this quote. It comes from a guy, Thomas Murray, 18th century. He was a martyr. He was a political martyr. I took the quote and I baptized it. I'm going to give it to you. The time will come when men must stand or fall for their actions. The time will come when all human pageantry shall cease. When the hearts of all and the truth of it all shall be laid open to view. So for those of us, again, who might be saying, you know, this warning is not for me. I'm not really taking all this in. What would Paul say? Well, he would say verses 11 and 12. Do you see it there? He said, this is an example for you. And then he would say, verse 12, if you think you're standing firm, be careful. Blepo is the Greek word there. Watch out. Take heed that you do not fall. Now, this makes good sense, right? It's the guy who, who falls asleep who doesn't know that they're asleep. It's the girl who knows she can fall who doesn't need to be hearing the warning, okay, you might fall. But the girl who doesn't think she will fall, she needs the warning. I said this in the first service. I'll say it in the second. In our house, there's a downward spare, a staircase to the basement. Every time I get up, and go down to the basement, I'm grabbing wall and everything. I grab everything. It's just, you know, it's early in the morning. I don't want to fall on my face. 
see? Listen to John Calvin. The ancient people were provided with the same benefits as we are and shared in the same sacraments so that we may not imagine that by trusting in some special privilege we will be exempt from the punishment which they had to undergo. And you can read about that punishment in Numbers chapter 14, verse 29 and following because that describes describes verse 5. Most didn't win the prize. Most didn't run to win. You see where Paul is tracking. You've got a very presumptuous people. Big egos, big conscience, big and large people. And they need to be brought down, not to hurt them, but to help them. So he reminds them of history. It's true history. He gives them a warning. It's a very real warning. And then he sets before them a hope. And what's the hope? Well, it's verse 13. God is so faithful And only the presumptuous person or the obstinate person or the non-believer would not cherish the fact that God is so faithful. We need God to be faithful. And yet God is so serious. His warning is, if we think we're fine, let the person who feels sure of his standing today be careful that he doesn't fall tomorrow. Because the biblical truth is that real personal evangelism is very costly. Because it demands of us a real personal relationship with other people by which we must be their slave and our old flesh. Uh, Chapter 9, verse 27. Chapter 9, verse 26. Our old flesh can't stand this. It can't stand this. However, the reward is in our current state so unmeasurable. And God wants us to win, if you would, so bad that when the temptation comes, He will keep it in check. He will point the way from it so that we can stand under it because God wants us to win the prize. So the warning is serious, right? He wants us to win the prize. 2 Corinthians 5, 6 is one of my favorite scriptures. It says, because I know what it is to fear the Lord, to fear Christ, I try to persuade people. You get it? Paul, what motivates you to personal evangelism? One is I fear Jesus Christ. Later on, he says, the love of Christ compels me, but we know our nature. We know our nature. Sometimes, what do we need? A little fire on the bottom, if you would. Come on now. Come on now. You can do this. I'm for you. I want you to get the prize. Take this seriously. Think, think, think. Say, say, say. Go, go, go. But the old flesh, it gets in the way. Yeah, but that's okay. I am so faithful, says God, that I I can make a way out of it. I'll give you an escape. You won't fall for it. And you can do what needs to be done so that you can win the prize. One quote, and then we're going to sing a song and take communion. It's a quote from J.I. Packer. I hope my room in heaven is right next to J.I. Packer. (laughs) I twisted a little bit to help me. This is what he's saying. We don't get in awe of God until we cultivate the sense that God is very great and that you and I are very small. I hope all of us feel very small. It's the best thing for us. Who says? Look at your Bible. Verse 11 and 12. These things happen to them as examples that are written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. 
So if you think you're standing firm, be careful. Be careful that you don't fall. Amen. Thank you for your attention this morning. Let's, let's pray. Father, even though we too often want our kingdom to come and we want our will to be done, you still sent your son to take away these sins. Thank you for this. And please open our eyes to see that the harvest is ready. It's ready to be gathered. May we love you and fear you so that we might obey you. Amen.